Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. Very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Welcome to the program. I'm Caroline Hepke. Roger, the increase in the number of deaths here in the UK from coronavirus does appear to be slowing down. That's obviously really good news as long as it lasts. But then the Prime Minister, not looking particularly well, has now spent a night in hospital. He's 55 years old. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly an issue, uh, although the government is very much emphasising he's still in charge. He's been having tests because his symptoms are persisting, in fact. And, of course, all this has raised questions about who's going to lead the country. Downing Street says Johnson is still the man in the main seat. However, the chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood, says we'll be seeing more of the Foreign Secretary. Dominic Raab, uh, the Foreign Secretary, will be chairing the Cobra Committee but the Prime Minister has made it clear that he will continue strategically leading uh, the uh, the battle against the coronavirus. Uh, but the day-to-day operations will be handed to Dominic Raab. So uh, that was Tobias Elwood there speaking, the chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee, also someone who's appeared uh, on the programme with us uh, before. So sort of pointing out that uh, others from the Cabinet will be uh, perhaps more front and centre in the coming days. We shall see. But what is the role in all of this of the opposition at this time? Joining us now is Alex Davies-Jones, who is the Labour MP uh, for Pontypridd. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Also, of course, uh, the Labour Party gained a new leader over the weekend, much less fanfare than usual. Uh, But then we also had news out about the shadow cabinet. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But Alex, first of all, I want to ask you on the main news today, are you concerned that the man leading the government is now in hospital of, of course Boris are both of you I, I, thank, thank you for having me on first of all but of course I'm, I'm very concerned for the prime minister and i wish him a speedy recovery and i also think that he should take this time to get well and actually rest up i don't think there would be any criticism of him should he take that time to make sure that he is up to the job and and fit and well um he has got a cabinet surrounded by him we have seen the foreign secretary we've seen Michael Gold as well front up these press conferences and these daily briefings, and I don't think there would be any criticism of him should he take this time to rest and make sure that he's fit and well and is back to full health. Well, let's pursue that point a little bit, Alex, because uh, the Queen last night, obviously speaking to the nation, deliberately evoked the memories of Britain in the Second World War. Now, of course, during the Second World War, there was a coalition government, Clement Attlee and Churchill uh, in charge. Is it time, perhaps in that light now, for a national unity government in this crisis, do you think? Well, I think we, we all want what's best 
for the country at this moment in time. We all want to work together to ensure that we beat this virus. We minimise the death toll in our communities and we, we get through it. That, that's the first and utmost priority for all of us here. But we also have a, have a very responsible and important job as the opposition to hold the government to account on some of their decisions and some of their, their calls here on this. You know, we've seen a massive lack of PPE. We've seen... Um, some of the calls on the ventilators and, and also on some of the bus drivers in, in London not having the adequate protection that they need. So some of these calls need to be challenged. Some of their decisions need to be challenged. And that is an important role for the opposition. Yeah, it, it is an important role. So then just tell us um, about the picture in your area, how the Welsh Assembly is handling the crisis too. What is the situation with you locally in terms of ventilators, PPE and testing? I think it's the same around the country. You know, there is a lack of PPE, there's, there's a lack of testing and there's a lack of ventilators throughout the UK. This isn't a problem um, limited to London, to Wales, to Scotland, to Northern Ireland. It is a problem across the globe, I would say. We're having an issue with a lack of tests and a lack of PPE. I know the Welsh Government here are trying to do their best. They're trying to source PPE to get it um, from wherever possible. Uh, my own local authority here in Rumberton and South, they're trying to procure PPE to try and make sure that our care homes and our frontline staff have whatever they need to be able to do their jobs effectively. Testing is a big problem here. I think, personally, we should have tested much earlier. I think the World Health Organization was saying, test, test, test. That's how we're going to beat this virus. Those, um, those calls should have been listened to a lot earlier. Okay. Do you understand why testing has not ramped up as quickly as you know many people, including yourself, would like to, to have seen? I don't know whether there's been a clear line on that. Do you understand why testing has not been... Uh, ramped up. I mean, obviously, you've got local experience. Yeah, my obviously my understanding is, I think the same as everybody else. The, the, the issue has been very unclear as to why we haven't been testing. I think the decision was made early on not to test, and then my own personal opinion is that when the government realised that that was potentially a bad move, by the time they wanted to test, they couldn't get hold of the materials needed to carry them out in such mass numbers. That was my own personal personal view on that. That we should have been testing earlier. I think now the, the ship has sailed, frankly, and we're really struggling to get what we need to be able to do that effectively. Alex, let's talk about the business scenario where you are as well. In fact, what I'll do, if I may, is just play you a little bit of an interview that Bloomberg had with Annalise Dodds, the new shadow chancellor, talking about the furlough arrangements, the ways in which government has been trying to help businesses uh, during this time. Um, because Annalise Dodds urged more employers to use the government's virus furlough programme. It would have been good if those discussions could have happened earlier, but at least we've now got a scheme in place. But I think there are big, big issues that government needs to be looking at now. First of all, we need to be looking at how employers can be very strongly encouraged to actually take part in that furlough scheme because we're seeing a number of them deciding not to do that. So that was Annalise Dodds, the new Shadow Chancellor. So Alex, let me ask you, I mean, locally where you are, is are businesses using these kind of opportunities that the government's put forward? Yes, on the whole, the majority of the big employers and, and the small employers in my constituency are, are taking this up, and I, I'm thankful for that, and I'm in discussions with many of them on a day-to-day -day basis. But as with everywhere, we have got that small minority of unscrupulous employers who aren't taking this up for whatever reason, and, and the, we have got workers and people falling through the gaps worried about how they're going to pay their bills and pay their mortgage. My inbox, my telephone has also been off the hook with people phoning me because they fall through the gaps in the Chancellor's support package. You've got 
people who are self-employed but who maybe have only recently become self-employed or those who were due to start a new job after the cut-off date of the 28th of February and those who are in the creative industries as well, all falling through the gaps and are unable to claim anything other than universal credit and it's pushing them into into, into mm. destitution, frankly, and it's really, really a big worry for them. Uh, uh, do you have a lot of examples of those? Can you give us any concrete uh, names that you're most concerned about? Um, in terms of in terms of people, yeah, I've got constituents contacting me, like I said, on the hour practically, who've just become self-employed, sort of the the painter, the painter decorator, the local plasterer or an electrician who, who started up their business, thought, I'm going to do this for myself, I'm going to become self-employed, but maybe only started it in the last 12 months and is now unable to claim any support from the government. And, and it's a big, big worry. I've also got a university in my constituency, the University of South Wales, and I've got students there who were working part-time um, on zero-hour contracts, many of them, in industry, in the leisure industry, who were the first to close because of the virus. And now they are, can't even claim universal credit because they're students, and they were working to, to support their studies. And that is a big, big concern for me as well. Alex, let me bring you on to the issue, obviously, that, that's, uh, I guess, in the minds of most Labour Party members at the moment, quite apart from the virus, which is the change in your leadership and what it's going to mean for the future of the Labour Party. How do you see Labour changing under Keir Starmer? Um, it's not just the Labour Party that's going to be changed now under Keir Starmer. It's politics as a whole after we get through this coronavirus pandemic. Um, is going to see is going to change. You know, we've seen massive amounts of money being pumped into the economy, into businesses to support to support us all through this. And it's it's going to be hard to see how we can ever go back to being business as usual. Now, um, it's going to be a big big challenge for us. But as a Labour Party, now we're led by Keir Starmer. He's currently building his shadow cabinet team. We've seen some fantastic new faces in there, and um, I personally really overjoyed to see Nick Thomas Simmons in there as Shadow Home Secretary you know to have a Welsh voice at the top table is really really important for me um, and it's really encouraging and exciting to see now how we grow as a party and as a movement to continue to hold the government to account so that we can be ready to form our own government when the next general election comes. Yeah uh, I mean look we've got a big uh, road before we get to that though. Um, Keir Starmer's uh, g- uh, given the top job or a top job to Lisa Nandy. Nothing to Rebecca Long-Bailey or to Jeremy Corbyn. Is that the right move for you? Well like I said he's still coming up with um, the top jobs and all the names are on the table yet. We're expecting more announcements later today to complete the shadow cabinet. So I, I wouldn't hold my breath yet to see what has actually been offered to everybody and particularly to Rebecca Long-Bailey. He did say during the leadership campaign that he would offer them both jobs in the shadow cabinet and I would be surprised if the, if the invitation isn't extended there. Um, but it's really exciting to see, to see Lisa obviously be promoted to shadow foreign secretary. I know she's going to do a fantastic job there. She was chair of Labour Friends of Palestine. Um, so she's got experience and the skills they needed to, to push forward this platform and to push forward our plans for a global solidarity. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Caroline, let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Well, uh, this morning it was all about consumer confidence uh, because the economic impact of the coronavirus lockdown uh, has obviously seen a significant hit on consumer confidence. In fact, the sharpest plunge on record in the last two weeks of March. Uh, GFK saying that its measure of sentiment dropped 25 points to negative 34. That's close to the level uh, that we saw during the financial crisis more than a decade ago. All the components of the index fell with a measure of major purchase intentions seeing the biggest slump and then the forward-looking gauges in terms of people's personal finances and also the UK's economic outlook overall, they also saw large declines. So it, you know, it has absolutely cut through to every consumer and citizen in the UK just how tough things will be economically because of the virus. Well, one group that certainly seems to be worst hit is young workers and the worst paid because according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, they are the most likely to be affected by the lockdown. The study found a remarkable concentration of workers under 25, women and the worst paid, would be hit by economic effects. The IFS said that it sparks, quote, serious worries about the effect of this crisis on the young especially and on inequality. Yeah, that's a real worry. But then there's also been this slew, Roger, of sort of gotcha moments, I guess, uh, for people who are not obeying the government's uh, directions when it comes to staying at home. In particular, Scotland's chief medical officer has now resigned after flouting the lockdown guidelines. Catherine Calderwood has apologised for travelling to her second home, which is about 40 miles from Edinburgh. According to a statement issued by the government, Calderwood spoke to the Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, regarding the incident hugely embarrassing of course because Calderwood has actually been the face of the advertising campaign in Scotland and a very effective one a very effective public communicator but obviously in a sense didn't really communicate with herself about what she should or shouldn't do anyway the UK has seen as we said a sharp surge in deaths from the pandemic uh, recording its deadliest day in fact over the weekend experts now expect Infection in the UK to peak within the next seven to ten days. But what's it like dealing with virus cases? Now, we know hospitals are under huge pressure. We've seen the pictures. But what about GPs, general practitioners in their surgeries? We're joined by Dr. Anshuman Bagat, who is an NHS GP, also Chief Medical Officer at GP Delivered Quickly, GPDQ, which is a private GP service. And he joins us on the line from Enfield in North London. So, um, Dr. Bagat, let me ask you first, because a lot we, we think about doctors helping patients but of course a lot of GPs have become patients themselves I think one in four NHS GPs are on sick leave at the moment so how is the system coping? Good morning um, so yes I mean as you said I'm an NHS GP in, in North London but uh, I'm in a very unique position here where um, I also um, work with an organisation GPDQ where we have over 100 GPs nationwide and one of the biggest things that we're really trying to do here is We've actually devoted our entire workforce now to support the NHS deliver remote consulting. Um, I think primary care is never going to be the same again um, after we get through this um, in terms of we're seeing a huge amount of uh, uh, acceleration of remote consulting, whether that be through sort of telephone, which we've done for many years, but also now through video. So um, we need that workforce. And going back to your comment of you're right, 25% of the work workforce being sort of um, at home, one of the challenges that we're really trying to fix here is, so the isolation period is, is, is obviously for seven days, um, but what we're finding is that we do have some clinicians who, who, you know, obviously we don't want them to work while they're unwell, but actually they become well, but are still isolated at home and can't leave the home. So one of the things that we're really trying to do is, is get this technology in 
so that we can have these doctors remote consulting from home, supporting the NHS. For example, I have a GP who was unwell for, for sort of, let's say, 48 hours, but they now have to self-isolate. So we really want um, them to start to, to provide remote consulting appointments, which we desperately need. Um, so that we can really start to get um, the number of appointments that we, uh, we need um, virtually uh, on a national scale. Yeah, I think that it is amazing, isn't it? Because the move to, um, to, to sort of remote working and to online delivery of services is something that has been talked about within the NHS for at least a decade. Um, but now suddenly the money and perhaps the drive and the push is there to deliver it. So, as you say, you know, there may be no going back now. Well, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, to be honest, I don't think that it, this isn't about a money issue. I think primary care, you know, the private sector have always been sort of uh, a little bit further ahead around remote consulting and video consulting. Um, and uh, in my own uh, sort of primary care setting, it's been there, but I think we've been so bogged down with sort of how uh, pressurized the system has been that change always takes time. Um, and I think the way we've been thrown into this, I mean, we've been jumped into the proper sort of deep end here. Um, I have clinicians who, who, you know, three months ago would certainly not have um, uh, maybe dragged their feet a little bit with, with remote consulting. But I think now, to be honest, the feedback we're getting is that um, it's the best thing they've ever done. So. I think um, we've had to change. We've all had to adapt rather rapidly. Um, but actually, I think it, it really has, you know, I think one sort of glimmer of light from all of this is that, you know, we've started to work in a very different way. And I think it's not just the NHS. I think the whole of industry really um, has started to uh, work in a different way to understand how can we run um, everything from the NHS right the way through to, um, to businesses in a, in a different way. Dr. Bagat, what about the issue of people who have illnesses that are not related to COVID-19, but are uh, clearly have problems? There's a lot of concern that perhaps they are going uh, untreated at this point, either because they can't get a GP appointment or perhaps they feel they shouldn't get in the way of people trying to cope with the virus outbreak. That's a big concern, isn't it? I, th I think it is. A, it is a concern. And, and, and I must say, firstly, patients have been fantastic. And certainly in terms of how they've adapted to this change rapidly, um, they appreciate that this is what we have to do now. And this is the way that we're going to consult. I think th the challenge in the question there for me is more around those that are housebound. So we are doing routine appointments and certainly that that continues. Um, apart from those that are acutely unwell, but we're just changing the way that we're delivering it. So um, we're starting to understand new different ways of doing these reviews um, and also asking patients to take sort of, I suppose, some responsibility around some of the equipment. So, um, you know, patients buying blood pressure monitors, patients buying pulse oximeters and, and different bits of kit that allow us to understand their disease a little bit more uh, closely while we do these things remotely. The challenge here is those for the, for the bed-bound and house-bound patients, whether that be in a nursing care home or even in their own home. That service itself currently is what we're really trying to concentrate on. How can we deliver um, a service which is not only safe to patients, because you know, what we don't want to do is bring this virus into an otherwise uh, virus-free home, um, but also we, don't, we, you know, we want to protect our front line to make sure that we're fully protected when we go in. So the acute COVID home visiting response services are really where we're trying to, to keep, um, keep patients out of hospital. And, and, and that's the critical key at the moment. Hospitals are struggling, as is primary care, but, but really where our role is now is to how do we deliver a safe service um, to treat people at home um, so they don't deteriorate. How can you do that when there's no testing? 
Um, well, I think testing is, is only half the answer. And I think we must firstly address the fact that, remember, 80% of um, patients who are going to contract COVID um, are going to have mild to moderate symptoms. They're going to struggle a little bit, but they're going to get better. Um, now, certainly there, are, uh, there is a population that clearly will accelerate in terms of their clinical needs. Um, and testing is, is something uh, we've got to really be smart with here. And I know that, you know, there's a big rush about, you know, well, if we don't test, if we don't test, we've really got to be concentrating on the interpretation of this testing. So there's two different types of testing. One is the, the, the sort of PCR test, which, will, which is the nasal and throat swab, which we're all aware of that have been carried out in hospitals, which, which tell you whether you have the condition now or not. And that's clearly important when you're unwell. And then there's the new finger prick test, which we're all um, talking about quite uh, um, aggressively. And certainly, you know, we currently have tests in stock, but this is not about rolling testing out um, in a sort of haphazard manner. We've got to understand um, the, the implications of the testing and the interpretation of these results, especially when we start to talk about, well, how do we get the country, once we get through all of this, how do we get the country moving again? How are we going to remobilize a workforce to get companies up and running, to get yeah. staff and workers back to work? We have to do that sensibly. We have to do it with evidence. And, and, and you know, talking about evidence, we don't know enough about the nature of this yeah. condition. And, and, you know, we've heard some early news from Korea. You know, we're in our early days of understanding this, but I think as we start to roll out testing, we just need to make sure that it's done in a responsible manner. Dr. Bagat, finally and briefly, I mean, do you feel safe yourself when you're consulting with patients in these sort of conditions? Do you have the necessary safety equipment to keep you safe? So, I do feel safe. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, my own practice, what we've done is we've, we've, we've bought ourselves additional PPE, and I know PPE is a very sensitive subject um, at the moment, and um, we must state really that, you know, we want to keep the front line safe, and Whatever that takes, we will do it. Yes, there have been some delays in, in, in arrival of PPE and lots of discussions about what is appropriate PPE. Um, but the reality is I don't think you can have enough of it. Um, I think the logistical challenge of, uh, of supply is certainly um, um, affecting our ability on that front. Um, but, look, you know, sourcing PPE currently is probably the nation's biggest problem. Um, but we are, we are being... Uh, uh, sort of ingenious in our ideas to try and make up our own at the moment, but we look forward to um, further supplies coming in from the government. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.